Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to the Constitution Classroom. Here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, we are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, good to catch up with you as always. We touched on Calvinism last week, but uh, you mentioned last week we barely scratched the surface. Well, we spent an hour on Calvinism last week, but you're right. We barely scratched the surface, and we're going to scratch it maybe just a little bit deeper today, but it'll still be so much more that we need to know about this subject. It is a very, very important subject. And we look at the Reformation. You know, some say the Reformation basically began and ended with Martin Luther. Others of the Calvinist mentality will say that no, Luther was just a footnote on the way to Calvin's Reformation. And some will say Calvin had more influence in the Western Hemisphere because the Lutherans didn't start coming in big numbers to North America until the 1800s. And by that time, of course, the Declaration, the Constitution, other things had been already drafted. So their influence on our heritage here in this country is not as strong as that of the Calvinist. The Calvinist influence is far greater in America. In fact, it has been estimated that of the three million Americans at the time of the Declaration of Independence, between those who were French Huguenots, those who were Dutch, those who were Scotch and Scotch-Irish, meaning from Northern Ireland, and those of England of the Puritan or Congregational strain, and even Anglicans, who many of them had become Calvinist by this time. Lorraine Boydner, in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, estimates that about two-thirds of the population of the American colonies in 1776 was Calvinist. And so their influence was substantial. But we've been looking at Calvin's life in Geneva. We've looked at his influence in Switzerland. We went from there to talk about his influence in the Netherlands, as we're going to see next week, as we look to the Mayflower Compact as being instrumental in establishing our form of government. We're going to see something very interesting that most people are not aware, and that's the the concepts of the Mayflower Compact and the beliefs of the pilgrims were influenced a great deal by the Dutch Calvinists because they spent approximately 10 years in the Netherlands before coming to America. But anyway, right now we are looking at Scotland, and we've seen the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism. And by the way, when you look at Calvinists, you won't see a church that simply calls itself the Calvinist Church but you will see churches that hold Calvinist theology. And which those are is going to depend in part on what country they come from. For example, the French Calvinists may call themselves the Huguenot. The English Calvinists may call themselves the Congregational. The Scottish Calvinists will call themselves Presbyterian. And the Dutch Calvinists will call themselves usually Reformed. In America, you have the RCA, Reformed Church in America. Then you have the Christian Reformed. But anyway, so right now we are looking at the Scots, and we've seen the influence of John Knox, how he stood up for the principles 
of Calvinism and the Reformation against Queen Mary and against some of those who would oppose him on this. And he is noted as a man of great, great courage, even though he was a small man, about 5'4", and thin, and lacking in good health a good share of his life. But at his graveside service in 1572, the Earl of Morton, James Douglas, declared, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. And his gravestone simply reads, I.K., meaning Ian Knox, 1572. Charles Brogenshire wrote of him, Scotland has erected no monument on the grave of John Knox, for Scotland is his monument. And for a long time, that would be true. Scottish Presbyterianism pretty well defined Scotland. That's faded in the last century to where today we find that Scotland has degenerated into a socialist welfare state and traditional Scottish culture there. Well, there's still some Scottish Presbyterianism, but a lot of the traditional Scottish culture there today is simply kind of like New Age paganism, like would have existed in Scotland before Scotland ever became Christian. But a couple other things I think we need to notice here about the Scottish Calvinists. One was when a group of Calvinists in 1638, large numbers of the Scottish clergy, the noblemen, the gentry, burgesses, that is, legislators, assembled in Greyfriars Kirk, Kirk means church, to sign a covenant by which they swore that they would keep the Scottish Kirk forever pure and free. And copies of the covenant were circulated throughout Scotland and to America, and those who signed were known as the Scottish Covenanters and strongly known for their Calvinism. But another person that needs to be looked at when we think about Scottish Calvinism is Samuel Rutherford. Now, Rutherford lived from 1660 or 1600 to 1661. He was a Presbyterian clergyman, theologian, and writer, professor at St. Andrews, and he is known know today for a very famous book that he wrote, one that is still being used. It is titled Lex Rex, and Lex Rex meaning law is king, the opposite being Rex Lex, the king is law, but the full title would be Lex Rex, or the law and the prince, a dispute for just prerogative of king and people. He published this around 1644, and Sprinkle Publications republished it in 1982. But he structures his book around 44 questions, and I'm not going to go into all of the questions here, but some of the basic questions that he is asking here concerning the relationship between church and state. Question one, whether government be warranted by divine law. Question two, whether or not government be warranted by the law of nature. Question three, whether royal power and definite forms of government be from God. Question four, whether the king be only and immediately from God and not from the people. And many other such questions as this. Now, we understand that at this time, England is going through a major dispute between the Puritans who control Parliament and the monarchists and Anglicans 
who control the throne. And they're asking these same questions. Does the king get his power directly from God? Or does he get it through the people? And James I of England, who had originally been James VI of Scotland before he came to the English throne, James had been raised by Presbyterians, and they thought when James became king, they had a real, real true blue Protestant. Well, it didn't work out that way. James was Anglican, somewhere between Catholic and Presbyterian, you might say, and insisted that his powers came directly from God. In fact, James was actually quite a scholar, much more so than most people would realize. But he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he didn't translate the King James Bible himself, but he was a Greek scholar of sorts. But he had written several tracts in which he argued that the king's powers come directly from God and not from the people, and wrote them as theological tracts. So the Scots, since he is really from Scotland, are very concerned about this issue. And by the way, we looked at this issue, and I go back to my home state of South Dakota to get all this resolved, but we looked at this issue. Does government come from the people, or does it come from God? Now, if it comes from the people, then that sounds like the French Revolution, mob rule, and it could even be Marxism, that God has nothing to do with this. If we say it comes from God, then the king's powers may be absolute, and he is free to do whatever he wants, and people have no say in it. I say, we go back to Scotland. And, I mean, go back to South Dakota, my home state. There in South Dakota, the state motto was drafted by a pastor, and South Dakota's state motto puts these together beautifully. It is, under God, the people rule. Under God, the people rule. God gives authority to government, and from God, the people derive, or, or I mean, God gives authority to the people, they give authority to governmental rulers, and from them, they have the authority to rule, but ultimately, from God. More about Lex Rex after we take a break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning more about the impact of Calvinism. Wow, that uh, that guy sent some very broad ripples across the uh, across history, didn't he? He certainly did, and we'll talk more about his influence in America, hopefully later today. But continuing with Lex Rex or Law and the Prince from Samuel Rutherford. For example, in question four, he had asked the question whether the king be only and immediately from God and not from the people. And his answer to that question is, God by the people, by Nathan the prophet, and by the servants of David and the states crying, God save King Solomon, made Solomon king. And here is a real action of the people. God is first agent in all acts of the creature. When people make the choice of a man to be their king, the states do no other thing under God but create this man rather than another, 
and we cannot here find two actions, one of God and one of the people, but in one and the same action, God, by the people's free suffrages and voices, created such a man king, passing by many thousands. And the people are not passive in the action, because by the authoritative choice of the states, a man is made of a private man and no king, a public person and a crowned king. Second Samuel sixteen eighteen, Hushai said to Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and the people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. Judges 8.22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule thou over us. Judges 9.5, the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. Judges 11.8 and verse 11, Judge, er, 2 Kings 14.21, the people made Azariah king, and so on. And then to question 14, where he asks, whether or no people make a person their king conditionally or absolutely, and whether there be such a thing as a covenant tying the king no less than his subjects. And he answers, the king is in a covenant relationship with his people, and the covenant imposes obligations upon both. He cites Second Samuel 5, 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with him in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, king over Israel, and then other passages as well. But let's move on to England now. And in England, we see we have Henry VIII in the 1500s. Henry VIII had wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, so he could marry Anne Boleyn, partly because he thought Anne Boleyn could give him a male heir. Catherine could not, and Henry assumed that was her fault, not his. But the Pope refused to grant an annulment of his marriage, so Henry separated the English church from the Roman Catholic Church, made it the Church of England, and with himself as the head. That's the first time in the history of the Western Church that I can find that the king is head of the church. In all other times, even in medieval Catholicism, church and state, while they interact with each other in many ways, they are separate institutions. But Henry did not renounce Catholic theology. In fact, he was basically Catholic throughout most of his life, although possibly moved a little toward Protestantism later in life. His daughter, Elizabeth I, though, who reigned from 1558 to 1603, was a kind of middle ground Protestant. She thought the Puritans and the Presbyterians were a bit excessive, but she was definitely not Roman Catholic. And so she adopted what they called a latitudinarian policy that we'll all be under the Church of England. And if we serve under the Church of England, then we can preach whatever we want. And so under the Elizabethan settlement, as it is called, you could have some Anglican priests who are practically Catholic in their theology and others who are very Puritan in their theology. But they're willing to call themselves Anglican, so that is fine. That continues then under James I, who takes office then after Elizabeth dies. And James, as I say, he was expected to be a very Protestant king, but he actually was somewhere in between. And so you find the Puritans have objections to James, as do the pilgrims, and they leave during James's reign. And we'll talk more about them next week. But as we move to James, the son, Charles I, Charles 
is still officially Anglican, but seems to be much more Catholic in his thinking even than James was. And this leads to repeated conflicts with the Puritan-controlled Parliament. And eventually, the Parliament, when it comes to civil war, actually, and the Parliament's army captures King Charles and brings him before the Parliament to be tried on charges of treason. And there's an interesting transcript to see that trial as it takes place. We don't have time to read much of it. But as the Lord President of Parliament asks King Charles to enter a plea, saying, the court expects your answer. And anyway, Charles refuses to enter a plea. He says, I would know by what power I am called hither. I would know by what authority I mean lawful. There are many unlawful authorities in the world. Remember, I am your king, your lawful king, and what sins you bring on your head and the judgment of God upon this land. Think well upon it, I say. Think well upon it before you go further from one sin to a greater. I shall not betray my trust. Charles, and I'm assuming he is sincere in this. He is taking the position. God made me king over Israel. And if you are charging me with treason and fighting against me, you are committing treason against the people of England. The parliament is saying, no, God has given us the authority over England. We have given you only delegated authority. And when you make war on us, you are committing treason. Well, the court ruled in favor of parliament, concluded that Charles was guilty of treason and he was executed. We come to 10 years, 1649, up until about 1660, when Oliver Cromwell serves as Lord Protector over England. He refuses to actually serve as king. He does not believe in monarchy at this point. But anyway, during this time, we see a very strong Puritan reign in England. When he dies, his son is not really capable of ruling as, as Oliver Cromwell had. And so, finally, they restore the son of Charles I, Charles II, as monarch. And he reigns from 1660 to 1685. Conflict with the Puritans continues. And then with James II. James II reigns from 1685 to 1688. He's the brother of Charles. He is in his 60s at this time. He is openly Catholic, but... They decide to let him go ahead and serve anyway because he does not have a male heir. At that age, he's not likely to have one and is likely to die pretty soon, so we'll be gone, and then we can put a real Protestant on the throne. Well, it doesn't work out that way. Even at that age, he produces a male heir. And so they bring in troops from the Netherlands with Prince William of Orange and his wife, Mary, who... Interestingly, is James II's daughter. But anyway, they, they come, and it is a bloodless coup. In fact, one of the interesting things they do is when they surround King James in the palace, they tell him not to try to escape because all of the front doors to the palace are guarded. And the implication to that is that the doors to the back are not guarded. And if you want to make an escape right now, this might be the time to do it. And he does. He flees to France. And so it's a bloodless revolution and leads to the English Bill of Rights. So that's the situation in England. And all of this is taking place while the American colonies are watching and wondering what's going to happen here. 
And what's going to happen is going to be very interesting because they will see the example of the glorious revolution of 1688. And that becomes a precedent when they decide to resist some of their rulers in Massachusetts. And then, of course, a century or less than a century later, the American War for Independence in the 1770s. So things are leading up to what's going to happen with the Mayflower Compact next week. Again, we thank you for joining us for Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we send it back to Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. As we're looking to the influence of Calvinism on law, we also need to look at France. And as we recall, Calvin was actually born in France, but lived most of his adult life in Switzerland. And there in France, France was a Catholic nation, and Calvinists were a small minority. And the Catholic authorities were very concerned about the Protestant Reformation, and were determined that what was happening in Germany and what was happening in Switzerland, Lutheranism in Germany, Calvinism in Switzerland, that was not going to happen in France. So in 1521, that's just four years after Luther's 95 Theses, the Parliament in Paris ordered that Luther's books be burned. Seventeen years later, King Francis III ordered that all Protestant books be forbidden, and so a more fierce persecution begins. But Calvinism is now the main religion among Protestants. Lutheranism did exist in France, but did not exist nearly to the extent that Calvinism did. And as the Huguenots, as they were known, as they grew in strength, the persecution likewise continued. And of course, those who are in Switzerland are certainly encouraging the Huguenots in France. But then takes place one of the very worst of all of the tragedies of the entire Reformation period, and that is the St. Bar- Bartholomew's Day Massacre, August 24th, 1572. King Charles IX and then his mother, Catherine de' Medici, decided that we need to get rid of these Huguenots, and so they lured many of the Huguenot leaders to Paris for a wedding, and then at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning of August 24th, 1572, they began a massacre. And not just in Paris, but this the word had gotten out, this was to be done in cities throughout France. And anyway, some claim that the amount that were massacred was anywhere between 5,000 up to 100,000. And it seems like 30,000 is a pretty fair estimate. And Anyway, so outrage at this throughout the Protestant world, but what's going to be done about it? Hard to say. Well, one 
Protestant writes a very interesting treatise on the subject of law and government. He writes this anonymously under the name of Junius Brutus. You recall Brutus was the Roman who participated in the assassination of Julius Caesar and was regarded by Roman Republicans as a hero, by those who supported the emperor as a traitor, of course. But Junius Brutus, wherever he was, wrote a treatise titled Vindicae Contra Tyrannos, the defense of liberty against tyrants, published in 1579 and had an impact in its time, but probably an even greater impact in the time of the American War for Independence. It was well known by John Adams, by many of the American founding fathers, and it's organized in much the same way as Lex Wet Rex would be organized a generation later. Questions such as whether subjects are bound and ought to obey princes if they command that which is against the law of God. In other words, if princes command what the law of God forbids, do we obey the prince or do we obey God? Question whether it be lawful to resist a prince which doth infringe the law of God or ruin the church. By whom? How? and how far it is lawful. Three, whether it be lawful to resist a prince which doth oppress or ruin a public state, and how far such resistance may be extended, by whom, how, and by what right or law it is permitted. And four, now here's an interesting question, applying to Switzerland, Germany, and Netherlands, and other countries like this, whether neighbor princes or states may be, or are, bound by law to give succor to the subjects of other princes, afflicted for the true cause of true religion, or oppressed by manifest tyranny. In other words, he's asking, if French Huguenots are being persecuted, then do Protestants in Switzerland, or Germany, or Scotland, or the Netherlands, have a right or a duty to come to their defense? Well, in the third question, resisting a prince, Brutus says, from scripture, history, and logic, God appoints kings, but he does so through the people, and therefore he says the whole body of the people is above the king. The king is like a ship's captain who has his hand on the pilot, but the people own the vessel, and the captain is accountable to them. Anyway, so armed conflict between the Huguenots and the Catholics continues through much of the 1500s, and in answer to the fourth, fourth question, well, they do get support from Protestants in Germany and in Switzerland and in the Netherlands, and with that support, we find that the Huguenots, or Protestants, win several significant victories, and they have a great leader, a prince, a French prince, who is Protestant, by the name of Henry of Navarre. Henry of Navarre, people don't know about him today, but one of the most important figures of his day, lived from 1553 to 1610. He had been baptized as a Catholic, but he was raised as a Protestant and fought very effectively for the Huguenots. But when King Francis died, then he became King of France. Well, what's going to happen now? Because with all the tradition of Catholic kings, how is this going to work? Well, Henry, as he becomes king, becomes convinced that only a Catholic can effectively rule France. So he converted to Catholicism, and he reigned as what is 
known today, King Henry the Great. But in 1598, and probably influenced a great deal by his Protestant background, he issued a decree that we call the Edict of Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S. And in this edict, he affirms Catholicism as the official religion of France, but he grants limited toleration to the Huguenots. And so with this peace that the edict secures, we have relative peace throughout France internally for most of the 1600s. And then in the 1600s also, we have another conflict taking place. And this is the 30 years war between Catholics and Protestants. And anyway, I've often wondered about the 30 years war as it gets to 1647, are they thinking, well, this is the 30 years war. We've only got one year left to wrap this up. No, I think it's named that after the fact. But at any rate, we divide it into four facets. The first facet is called the Bohemian phase from 1618 to 21, when the Protestant leaders of Bohemia fight the Holy Roman Emperor to gain their own king. Then comes the second phase, the Spanish phase, where Spain enters the war, on the side of the Holy Roman Emperor of Southern Germany, and do so to in 1621 to 1625, and kind of reverse things. They recapture some of the cities, and so now the Catholics are winning. And then looks like it's going to be total defeat, but then the Lutheran king of Denmark, the Scandinavians have converted to Protestantism, and the Lutheran king of Denmark, Christian IV, intervenes, and he's the one who saves the Protestants from total defeat. 1630 to 1635 is the Swedish phase of the war. And here comes one of the truly great figures of the 1600s, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, often known as the Lion of the North, a tremendous military leader who drove back the forces of the Holy Roman Emperor. In fact, as they were ready to begin battles, he would have all of his troops on the battlefield sing together, in Feisterburg, or a mighty fortress, is our God. And, in fact, he's even called sometimes the father of modern warfare because of his military tactics. But there was one battle, the Battle of Lützen, and the Swedish forces won the battle against the Catholic forces of Wallenstein. But King Gustavus was killed in the battle, and that was a major loss. And, you know, sometimes just as a military man, we ask the question, which would fight better, an army of sheep led by a lion or an army of lions led by a sheep? And I don't think that's ever been tested, but Gustavus was certainly a lion, but then his soldiers weren't really sheep either. Well, now it looks like things are going to shift to the Catholics again, but at this point, the French enter the war, and they enter on the side of the Protestants. And they do so because they fear the Holy Roman Emperor, and they fear Spain. And France's tactic for a thousand years, their main tactic for foreign policy has been to strengthen the enemies of their opponents. That's why they'd come to aid the United States. That's why they'd aid Scotland or the Netherlands, why they'd aid the Protestants here. Time for a break, then we'll finish up the war and go to America.
welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. This is our final segment of today's show, but uh, Colonel, we won't be through talking about the influence of Calvinism, um, even even though we spent now, you know, pretty much two hours talking about it. Oh, there is so much more to talk about here, but as we say, we've come to the end of the 30 years, and so they had to wrap up the 30 years war, and they do so with what's called the Peace of Westphalia. And the Peace of Westphalia is an agreement that the prince of every territory throughout Europe, that is the countries of Europe that are affected by the war, England is not in this war, but that the prince will determine the religion of that nation. And secondly, next part of the agreement is that regardless of which religion the prince chooses to make official, they will grant tolerance to Calvinists and Lutherans and Catholics. In other words, if you have a Lutheran king, he grants tolerance to Calvinists and to Catholics, and so on. Third part of the agreement, though, is the radical heretics like the Anabaptists and others like this, they will not be tolerated by anybody. They were considered to be a threat to the basic peace and order of society as well as heretics theologically. So we not only are free to persecute them as much as we want, but we kind of have a duty to do so. Well, now let's go to America. And here in America, then, we see those who are coming to America primarily being Calvinists. We see the settlement of Jamestown in 1607, and there was more Christianity at Jamestown than most people are willing to acknowledge. They land, and as they land, they plant a cross and have a worship service. One of the things their charter is very clear about is that they are to evangelize the salvages or savages as they find them here and so on. And we read many accounts of Alexander Whitaker and others who came here to Jamestown as missionaries to the Pamunkey and other nations in the Poetan Confederacy. And we think about about Pocahontas. And we think of Pocahontas, this young princess, how she fell in love with John Smith, Captain John Smith, one of the truly magnificent military leaders. I think he and Cortez would find themselves having a lot in common, but an amazing man. But sometime maybe I'll just tell the story of John Smith. But she, when her father is ready to put him to death, she falls upon him, say, no, father, no, please spare him. Actually, that probably happened, but maybe not quite in that way. Probably this was all prearranged, and by sparing his life, it was the opportunity for the Emperor Poetan to make John Smith and the Jamestown settlers his vassals. Well, they didn't see it. They kind of thought maybe it would be the other way around. But we see that Pocahontas becomes a Christian. She and her husband, John Rolfe, interestingly enough, when she married this nobleman, John Rolfe, she goes to England with John Rolfe, and she finds that in England there are objections to their marriage, but they're not what you might think. It's not a racial objection. The objection is marrying between classes. John Rolfe was simply a nobleman or gentleman, and a rather low-ranking gentleman at that, whereas Pocahontas is the daughter of an emperor. She's a princess. She's royalty. 
but they came to England to raise funds to take back to Jamestown to build a school to teach Christianity and literacy to the tribes of the Poetan Confederacy. Unfortunately, Pocahontas contracts what's probably pneumonia and dies in England, but nevertheless, the work is carried on, and there are people in America today who claim descent from Pocahontas and John Rolfe. But we look to the Puritans of Massachusetts, then as they come in. We'll talk about the Pilgrims next week. But the Puritans are taking Calvinism a step further than what even Calvin would take it. And you recall that they are called Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England. They weren't Puritans so much in a lifestyle, although they were to some extent, but they were Puritans more in doctrine. And they felt that the Church of England had been allowing, under the Elizabethan settlement, all sorts of heretics and false doctrine, and they wanted the Church to be pure and purely Calvinist and their version of Calvinism. And when they were not able to get their way in England, many of them came to America. And came aboard the Arabella in 1630 and many more thereafter, and established the Salem and Boston and other colonies in Massachusetts. Plymouth is a little to the south of them. And by 1700, Plymouth will be pretty much absorbed into Puritan theology. But we read the speech that their governor, John Winthrop, gives them. And to read Winthrop's diary, it is a journal, it's a remarkable work to see some of the history of the Puritans there. But as he says to them, as they are probably, he reads this before they even land. And he says, thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into a covenant with him for this work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord hath given us leave to draw our own articles. We have professed to enterprise these and those accounts upon these and those ends. Now, if the Lord shall please to hear us and bring us in peace to the place we desire, then hath he ratified this covenant and sealed our commission and will expect a strict performance of the articles contained in it. But if we neglect the observation of these articles, which are the ends which we have propounded, and dissembling with our God shall fail to embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us, be revenged of such a sinful people, and make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. Then they go on, he goes on to talk about the covenant, and he says, We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of success, seeding plantations, the Lord make it likely that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Remember Reagan always using that phrase, America is that bright shining city on a hill. That's where he gets it. And in turn, of course, Winthrop gets it from the Bible. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and byword throughout the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants 
and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us until we be consumed out of the good land whither we are a-going. Point of the matter is, whether you believe they were in a covenant with God or not, clearly they believe they were in a covenant with God. And if they were not faithful to their covenant with God, they believed they would be under God's judgment. And they adopt a code of laws, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. And just to see how biblical this code of law is, it says, for example, Article 1 or Article 94, Section 1, if any man after legal conviction shall have or worship any other God but the Lord God, he shall be put to death. Section 2, if any men or women be a witch, that is, hath or consulted with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Section 3, if any person shall blaspheme the name of God the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, with direct, presumptuous, or high-handed blasphemy, or shall curse God in like manner, he shall be put to death. But they use the law of God not only to enforce a severe morality, but also to protect those who are, who are charged with this violation. For example, we have one case, case of a couple that were found in bed together and therefore accused of adultery. But scripture says by the mouth of two or three witnesses that everything be established and they had not actually been seen in, in the actual act. And so as they deliberated on this, we read in Winthrop's journal, whereupon the case seeming doubtful to the jury, they judged it safest in the case of life to find as they did. So, this is quite a sentence that they give. The court adjudged them to stand upon the ladder at the place of execution with nooses about their necks one hour, and then to be whipped, or each of them to pay 20 pounds fine. Well, I think they thought about that pretty carefully the next time they were tempted. Point of the matter is, yes, the Puritan colonies in New England, emphasized under Calvinism, saw a government under God's law, a holy commonwealth, the rulership of the elect, with the community of the redeemed. And no, they didn't have perfect religious liberty. The idea that those who disagreed were perfectly free, free to leave New England and not come back. And now we'll see the pilgrims next week.